time, we will. Yeah, Keep it short. Yes. No, 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 no. Oh, right. I think we'll move straight on. Thank you very much. I have no slides. Um, Perhaps we'll leave that one next. Sure. Yes, yeah, why not? Rather. <laughs> You're probably a bit exhausted after <laughs> hearing all of this. I, I'm here to speak about Ecoside Law, which is what I'm um, legally advising on and have been for the last six years. I'm a barrister. I'm now no longer practicing the court. I, this work is now filling up my life in a very big way. And it, it, it's a law that actually addresses a lot of the issues that have been flagged up here. Um, in a nutshell, what, what this is about is missing law as an international crime to criminalize mass damage and destruction to the earth. I, at the moment, it amazingly is not a crime. I, it very nearly became a crime back in the mid-1990s when a very important document called the Rome Statute was being drafted up, a codification document, where it was bringing together under one document the existing international crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and it was adding in provisions for new crimes, specifically crimes of aggression, which is the run-up to war, and also ecocide. It was also the document that put in place the International Criminal Court in Hague. However, at the very last minute of the 11th hour, after 11 years of drafting, it was announced uh, at a closed door meeting with not many more people than we have here today that ecocide was going to be removed. And at that time, there were 54 countries involved in the drafting, and 50 of them had actually officially agreed ecocide. What we do know from documentation that's been found in the last few years is that four countries essentially were lobbied behind the scenes to have it removed. And I'm sure you can guess at least one of those countries. <laughs> um, okay, if you can't... Yes, China. No, not China. China actually is a huge advocate for ecocide law, bizarrely. I, the UK. Brazil. Um, Brazil is contentious that, that we've found kind of conflicting documents around that. But it's the Netherlands and France. Yeah, everyone's surprised at this, but if you look at the context of the mid 90s, I'm leaving now actually. I, what is the main industry that arises out of the Netherlands? It's oil. So, uh, this is not my opinion, this is the opinion of the, uh, the UN rapporteurs at the time who left records of what their issues to happen with. And 1996 was a very pivotal year for uh, fracking as well in the United States. It was the first year that they really advanced it. And it was recognised that inside law uh, would uh, play against business as usual, not just for big oil, but also for genetic modification, I, uh, for nuclear, not so much the use of nuclear energy, but the waste that arises out of nuclear energy, which is then sold on uh, for nuclear weapons, depleted uranium, for instance. I, so the, the UK seemed to have a finger in all of these pies. <laughs> we don't come out well from this at all. But also what's very interesting is that documentation has just been found in the last six months, where it was also discovered that in 1996, not only was ecocide removed as an international crime for what was collectively known as crimes against the environment, but it was also being removed as state crime. 
So in a way, we're having the removal of corporate crime and state crime in the same way. <coughs> explicitly, suicide was going to be recognised as a state crime. In other words, if you're energy minister and you sign off and give permits for uh, <coughs> a dangerous industrial activity such as fracking, you could be held to account for the cumulative impact of that being an inside and could have been prosecuted in a criminal court of law. So uh, what we're seeing here is that there's a kind of gap in the law and inevitably, as always happens, you, know, you try and push something down over there, it um, pops up in a lawyer's head over here. <laughs> and it's just a matter of time when finally people come to a point and go, yeah, well, of course, this is law will require it. So you could say this is a progression of where law will go. I, and often we see this with the progression of law. You start with soft law provisions. So starting with maybe uh, voluntary agreements, UN Global Compact uh, about social responsibility for big business. So you have companies signed up to that. Um, for instance, there are Norwegian companies that buy and sell weapons of mass destruction. Norway being very transparent and accountable, you can go on their websites and you can order those weapons online if you have enough money to pay for it. Um, but nevertheless, they're signed up for the UN Global Compact because they're socially responsible and they look after their employees. It doesn't matter that their weapons are destroying vast territories and hundreds of thousands of people elsewhere. So there's kind of a cognitive dissonance, if you like, here, where you have soft provisions that actually really aren't actually carried through to the end product and how it's being used. But moving along that kind of spectrum of law, you then end up with soft international provisions such as treaties, conventions, protocols, nuclear non-proliferation treaty. We are a signatory here in the UK, and yet we continue to proliferate nuclear weapons. And in fact, we hold uh, a kind of weapons fest, if you like, in the O2 Centre in London every year for people and weaponry. I, so moving along that kind of spectrum of law, you then move into a place where you start bringing in other provisions that start to recognise, sometimes within a human rights context. But rights in isolation is not enough. I, your human right to life, for instance, is governed by the criminality, the crime of murder. Without that crime of murder, if you were to be standing up a mountaintop saying, I have the right to freedom of speech, I have the right to whatever, and someone comes along and shoots you, if it's not a crime, you're left you know, without any recourse, or rather your family because you're dead, any recourse to justice. Now that's actually very important. So you have on one side of the coin rights, on the other side you have duties and obligations. Now that's absolutely crucial here because the two do not stand in isolation, they actually go hand in hand. Now there's a growing narrative as we're coming along the spectrum of law around uh, not just human rights, but our earth rights, nature's rights, animal rights. But what are our duties and obligations? What governs those rights? How do we actually exercise the criminality? If we're looking at one of the most important rights of all, the earth's right to life, because ultimately if the earth is fundamentally destroyed, our peaceful enjoyment, our way of life, becomes destroyed as well, then how is that governed through criminality? How do we protect the Earth's right to life, if you will? And that's where ecocide law comes in. 
And very interestingly, ecocide law, actually, you can look at it through a number of different lenses, if you will. It's not just the Earth's right to life, it's the human right to life. But also, you're looking at the rights of future generations. You know, what are we setting up as ticking time bombs in our lifetimes that can actually cause significant adverse impact for future generations? So this is really about how we expand our cycle of concern, not just human-to-human -human engagement, but human-to-non-human engagement as well. How is it that we ensure that we have duties and obligations in place that address uh, a wider concerns, how we actually steward land, if you will. Criminal law deals with stewardship, if you like. It takes a moral wrong and puts it into a legal wrong. So at some point along the annals of history, we decided that morally it's wrong to kill people, therefore we make it into a legal wrong, we criminalize it. And the legal term is called when malum in se becomes malum prohibita. When something is so wrong in and of itself, we prohibit it, we criminalise it. And indeed, if you look at uh, slavery, there are fantastic parallels between the abolition of slavery today and then, 200 years ago, and today, when you're looking at ending ecocide. I, with slavery, you had a whole process where it started with soft law, agreements, national, international agreements. And it then moved on. In fact, we had an international treaty. The year the international treaty was put in place, in fact, slavery had its best ever profits. It wasn't stopping it at all until it was actually abolished. And how it was abolished was it was criminalised. And that's very important, that criminalisation, because it becomes, most importantly, incumbent upon the state to take action on the slaves' behalf or on your behalf. If a crime has been committed against you, you don't sue if it's a crime. The state takes action on your behalf. You walk out of here today and someone smashes a beer bottle over your head in a pub around the corner, and you end up falling down the steps and concussed in it. We're still broken ribs in hospital for six months, can't walk for a while. That's really a body of harm. And if that person does not accept responsibility, then there will be a trial. But that's brought by the state. You don't pay for that. The state acts on your behalf. And that's very important. There's a big difference between civil action and criminal uh, proceedings. Now, looking through the lens of ecocide law as an international crime, what that's doing is it's criminalising mass damage and destruction. In fact, specifically, it's criminalising extensive damage, destruction to a loss of ecosystems of a given territory. In fact, it's doing two things. It's prohibiting, essentially, dangerous industrial activity. And not just industrial activity, but most human-caused ecocide is corporate ecocide. If it's state-sanctioned, it's also a state crime. I, but also what it's doing here it's, it's creating a legal duty of care to give assistance for those who are adversely impacted. And that's very important when you look at a second type of ecocide, and that's a naturally occurring ecocide. The most obvious example of that is rising sea levels. So the UN are expecting 150 million people to be displaced through climate refugees as climate refugees by 2050. That's a heck of a lot. 
especially when at the moment our largest refugee camp that we have, which is in Colombia, only houses one million people. And that was set up as a temporary camp <coughs> 20 years ago. People are living and dying there. What are we going to do with 150 million people? Just keep on putting them in refugee camps? This is a huge problem. So ecocide law does two things here. It's closing the door to the harmful activity, human-driven activity, which for climate-related uh, reasons is very helpful because there is a nexus between the dangerous industrial activity, which amongst other things is generating excess greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also creating the legal duty of care to give assistance to those who are adversely impacted. Whether or not you, you call it climate crime, or as a result of excess greenhouse gases, we have melting ice, which gives rise to rising sea levels, or whether or not on the facts of the evidence, in legal terms, you have rising sea levels. So it doesn't matter if you call it a climate issue. The fact of the matter is you have people whose way of life and traditional knowledge, culture, and is under threat. And it's really more than an existential threat. This is a reality. I don't know if you saw the news last week. Five uh, uh, atolls have now gone underwater in the uh, Marshall Islands. I think it's Marshall Islands. have already gone under. So communities are already having to get off those islands, and it's happening far faster than anticipated. But this also has huge impacts for protecting, and this really picks up Dr. Pearson's uh, aspect about traditional knowledge and indigenous way of life. I, where an indigenous way of life is under threat as a result of ecocide, whether or not it is through rising sea levels or some other naturally occurring event, or through a dangerous industrial activity such as unconventional oil extraction in the Athabasca tar sands. At the moment, as you quite rightly pointed out, these indigenous communities have no enforcement for the recognition of indigenous rights for their way of life. Ecocide as an international crime gives that enforcement. So it's the two sides of the coin here. We have the rights and we recognise that in law, but there is no clear enforcement in place. And that's where, once you go through the spectrum of law, you get to the inevitable conclusion, okay, we have to criminalise that significant harm. And that's where ecocide law comes in and actually closes the loop, if you will. So it's a natural progression of where law is going. I mean, some people say this is extreme law. And in some ways, yes, we could say that's true, but if we're meeting the extremity of the situation that we're facing here, in terms of the mass damage and disruption that's playing out uh, at a global level, then it requires an extreme measure to meet that and to significantly abate it. And so this is the work that I'm really working on now, it's actually how we get this tabled and get it tabled very fast. Because the fantastic thing is, unlike most treaties uh, that can take many years, all this requires is an amendment to the existing Rome Statute, the governing document for the International Criminal Court, and to do that only requires one head of state that's a signatory to take it, and this is now what I'm doing, in fact we're looking to bring a block of states forward to have this tabled. So this has huge implications uh, for society as a whole, I, at many different levels. And it's also how we then choose to govern how we move forward at a state level, at a business level, 
uh, as well as a, a legal level, so it's political as well as legal. And in a way, law sometimes is playing catch up with where civilization is going. There is a growing um, noise, if you like, arising around not just climate issues, but the fact that it's becoming untenable to continue with mass damage and destruction. Now, as someone who has researched the oil industry, um, I'm very aware that back in uh, 1906, when the very first oil field was discovered, the man who discovered that, and this was an oil field that ran for a hundred years, it only stopped six, eight, no, ten years ago. I, I'm very conscious that when that first oil field was found, we had no understanding of the consequences of the harm of drilling into uh, land. And I'm, I'm doubly conscious of this because the man who found the world's largest oil field, his name was Patul Higgins. He was actually an ancestor of mine. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't actually inherit any of his great money, but never mind. <laughs> but nevertheless, it, what we now see is that you know our knowledge and understanding <coughs> is catching up, and we're seeing that certain practices are extremely damaging and destructive. That's not to say that it may be possible that we can extract without causing significant harm. And I had a very interesting meeting a few years ago with uh, a coal baron who sat down and said, by the end of this meeting, you and I are going to be friends. <laughs> and we actually did have a very good conversation because he was saying, I need your law. I, I want to use really innovative technology for coal mining. And it wasn't just coal mining, it was gold and, gold and diamonds as well, and huge consortiums in, of course, countries where there are no laws to stop significant harm occurring, mainly in Africa. And he wanted to use laser technology for mining. Now, laser technology is really fantastic, it's very innovative. It's the kind of keyhole surgery instead of the mass butchery. And this would mean then that they weren't using huge amounts of chemicals to go in and blast open vast uh, tracts of land and rock to get at what they required. You just simply insert lasers in and then take out what was required. And of course, hugely expensive. For him to go ahead with that today, like any mining company, it would damage their bottom line. And of course, here's the thing. For industry, their number one legal <coughs> requirement today is to put the interests of their shareholders first, which means to maximise profit. So if you're going to do something that's going to dent your profit margins, what that means is you become uncompetitive, which means you can't even bid for government tenders for projects. So there's this huge hermetically sealed loop of harm and destruction playing out as a result of law. Law has created a lot of these problems. But law can also act as a huge disruptor in that pattern of harm and actually say, okay, we change that number one overriding duty. Because there's a hierarchy of law, and those of you who understand the conflict of laws will understand that, of course, international criminal law supersedes all other laws. And that's very important, especially for countries who have bilateral treaties uh, in existence. And this is a big issue at the moment. I've just come back from America and the UN, where I, had a, I was invited in for briefing meetings with small island developing states who really require a law 
I, firstly, they're looking at it through the lens of, well, we're going underwater. Uh, but secondly, that dangerous industrial activity is aggravating greenhouse gas emissions. You know, we don't have an issue with oil drilling per se, but actually the consequences of the oil drilling are so significant. Meanwhile, if you're an indigenous person living in Canada, you do have huge issues with the drilling because actually it's destroying the land, it's wiping up vast tracts of ancient arboreal forests and wetlands. It's, it's wiping out your way of life. So different people come in from different directions. But small island developing states are tied up with a lot of bilateral treaties with America mainly. Um, actually agreeing to giving them immunity from uh, civil litigation. Beauty is international criminal law does not recognize those bilateral treaties. It overrides them, so they don't apply. So it's a kind of unraveling, if you like, of the legal system and working out how can we fast track through with this. And the benefits, of course, are enormous, um, not only for biodiversity and for you know, the futures of our children or our children's children, how we choose to engage with the world at large, but also it has benefits in terms of actually development. You know, what do we then choose to invest in? It's the innovation in the other direction. Suddenly the laser technologies actually prices drop because it becomes the normative. You have to by law use those processes. Dirty energy becomes clean energy and it's mandatory. So it turns everything around in its head. Massive job creation schemes. And in a way this is also about emergency law. I'll just, this is my last point in this. Emergency law, often we get frightened by the word emergency, but emergency is just a state of emergence. You get to a certain point when something else has to emerge here and there's a different way of approaching, a different perspective and how law can actually act as a tool to lever us to turn around into the innovation in the other direction, into actually supporting that moral duty of care, becoming legal duty of care and assistance. And it's that common denominator, the golden thread I call it, where actually it's about how we take what we care about and our world, and we're not putting prices on it, but we're actually doing it from a place of deep care, and that has legal weight and gravitas within an international criminal court. And that in itself is hugely, hugely important. Just like when we abolished slavery, we did it with genocide, we did it with apartheid, we criminalised all of them, and now we can commit genocide. Thank you very much.